Hey y'all, it's Dr. Samina Rahman, Gyno Girl. I'm a board-certified gynecologist, a clinical assistant professor of OBGYN at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, and owner of a private practice for almost a decade that specializes in menopause and sexual medicine. I'm a South Asian American Muslim woman who is here to empower, educate, and help you advocate for health issues that have been stigmatized, shamed, and perhaps even prevented you from living your best life. I'm better than your best girlfriend and more open than most of your doctors. I'm here to educate so you can advocate. Welcome to Gyno Girl Presents Sex, Drugs, and Hormones. Let's go. I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this podcast today. I have a family, friend, as well as a patient peripherally that I interviewed for this podcast. Um, We're going to call her Layla, and she's going to talk to us about her vaginismus journey. She is a South Asian Muslim. She's in her 40s. She basically talks about how vaginismus impacted her quality of life to such a degree that it helped her journey with vaginismus for over four years in her marriage, eventually helped her discover her sexuality, that maybe she wasn't heterosexual, lied somewhere on the spectrum. I think that was something she discovered through her vaginismus journey. And also just recognizing that her husband at the time wasn't right for her. So it led her to actually even getting a divorce and finding herself. So this is a great episode. Uh, Everyone's journey is different. We educate to advocate. Remember that. So I hope that you enjoy this as much as I did. Today, I have a special guest today, and it follows a little bit of what I spoke about earlier around vaginismus. In the previous part of this episode, I discussed vaginismus, sort of what it is, my journey, treatment options, and the history around it. And today, I wanted to introduce you to someone that wasn't officially a patient of mine, because I I did tell you guys that in this podcast, I'm going to bring on either former patients or people that I've helped with their journey or experts in the field. And so today I'm very excited to bring on a very close family friend. She's pretty much like a sister to me. And we're going to preserve her name and her identity. So her name is Layla. And basically, you know, she also has an experience with vaginismus. And we're going to talk about her journey, how it impacted her life, and also how she was able to kind of come to the other side and recover from that. Because I mentioned sort of the treatment options in the previous discussion that I had, but I wanted to get further into like personal journeys because everyone's journey is different, right? I think that's something we have to realize and recognize that I do not practice a one size fits all medicine because medicine doesn't fit everyone in the exact same way. Everyone's and that's a point I want to kind of just hone in on in this podcast in general that the society we grow up in, our cultural background, our religious background, and everything around how we are raised, as well as our genetics and our biology, play an important impact as we get treated in society, but also just in terms of our medical conditions and how we should go about treating them. And that's why you can't say that everyone that has postmenopausal symptoms should go on hormone therapy or everyone should not go on hormone therapy. Why you can't say that dilators will fix everyone's uh, issues with vaginismus. There's so much that contributes to 
at least what we know around sexual medicine, the biopsychosocial sort of approach to treating patients that have sexual dysfunction. And that's very important. And that's why it's usually multimodal treatment. Multidisciplines are involved in sort of treating and helping patients that are suffering from all of this. So it's my pleasure to have on Layla onto the show. First, she'll introduce herself, and I'm going to give her an opportunity to do that. And then, Layla, why don't you tell everyone you know, who you are and when it was that you discovered that you had sexual dysfunction? And then we can talk about your journey a little bit. Hi, Samina. I'm so excited to be on your first podcast. So my name is, is Layla, and I am in my mid-40s. I discovered that I had vaginismus early on in my marriage to a man maybe about Layla and I are both Muslims and um you know we are we pra- we're practicing Muslims and Islam has been a big part of our culture too so I think that that is something that we should preface No absolutely yeah that is that is my upbringing as a practicing Muslim and conservative upbringing so well conservative in the sense of uh traditional Muslim I know that can mean a lot of different things I discovered that I I had vaginismus when I was maybe about a year into my marriage with my now ex-husband. So Layla basically telling us, you know, how she first discovered it. She was married for a year. And is it my understanding, Layla? Because I know that we had spoken back then. So is it my recollection is correct in that you were not able to have any kind of penetration with your husband at that time. And this was a new, new discovery for you. Obviously, you know, you can let us know as well, like historically, like, were you ever able to use tampons? Did you ever try to use tampons? Was that even discussed in your household? Like, I know you have other sisters, so, you know, maybe you had that discussion, but, you know, tell me a little bit about that. And then, and then you can tell me a little bit about how with vaginismus, how severe it was, like, could you not get penetrated at all? Or you, able to get some penetration, but not all the way. I mean, in my previous video, I talked about sort of the grades of vaginismus and how we see them clinically. But I want you to kind of express to me what you felt and how that was for you in terms of your discovery. And yeah, this is all so emotional. And I want to bring my emotion into this because it is, it is such an emotional experience. My husband was my first sexual partner. I say relatively traditional conservative upbringing, a religious, in, in that sense that I just, I didn't want to have intercourse with anybody until I was married. And then I, of course I didn't get married until my early thirties. So that was a bit of a challenge, but I always thought that I would, that it would just happen. I hadn't used tampons before either. It was like, mm, I don't know what, if I want to stick anything up there. And I just, the idea of that prior to marriage I just, even then, so I wasn't even using tampons. And so I always thought it would just happen. And I remember the night of our wedding, you know, which was supposed to be sensual and exciting and all of that stuff. And I started off that way. And then I just started, I started getting emotional. I started crying and because it just wouldn't happen. It it hurt. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just said, this is not happening. It didn't even get like uh, his penis didn't even get close. Like it was just there. And it just, there was, I just stepped away. I was like, I, I don't know. I thought this would happen, but then I kept wanting to try it again and, you know, bring it up. So it was, it was a uh, very emotional and, you know, I'm sad for both of us. My ex-husband and I, that was the experience that we had. That's how that started. 
And then your question about tampons. So then, so we continued to try in this way where it was, I wasn't doing any exercises. I wasn't doing anything different. But the thing was what I didn't direct. Yeah. I didn't even know because what I heard from friends and it was still very embarrassing to talk about anything sexual. Like that was just not something I did with my sisters or my friends, but I had a close friend at the time who got married around the same time I did. And she was also having trouble. She said it took her about a month to consummate or allow penetration. I don't know the technical term. And then I heard that from, from other people. So I remember asking you at some point too, and so I heard that that was the case, that it, that's just how it happens. And so I thought I just let, I didn't think there was anything I per se had to do mentally or physically, but I did start buying a tampon on and I, I didn't even, it was really painful and I don't think I even inserted it properly. And I'm just like trying to walk around limping with a tampon. This was in my early thirties too. And, yeah. and so, so even with a tampon. I imagine the frustration. I mean, this is what I'm hearing from so many of my patients. And, you know, it's what I expressed in my previous discussion about my own experience is that here we are in a society that, you know, really does, there's a lot of sexualization that occurs in, in our society and sex is so prominent, right? Like this is a term that we hear all the time. And I think for me, and I, I think it was probably the case for most of us South Asian Muslims born and raised here, but our families try to maintain sort of the cultural respect that they from previous generations, right? We're dealing, we're kids of immigrants who immigrated here. And what do immigrants tend to do? They try, they either totally assimilate into society or they try to hold on to their culture. And I think for us, we were raised very similarly. We were, our culture was held on. It was believed, it's no surprise to anyone that culturally in Pakistan and in Muslim countries, sex is not discussed, periods are not discussed, healthcare is not really discussed. And so you're supposed to not even interact with men. And then all of a sudden you're getting into a situation where you hit 30 and your parents are now like, why aren't you getting married? This is what this was the frustration that I think most of us had was like, okay, we're not even supposed to even look in that direction. And then we get to a situation where we were in a situation where we waited to have sex before marriage. And then we're in the situation where we should be having sex, right? Like we're we, we envision this great moment. You hear about all the great orgasms people have, all the pleasure, the connection you get with your husband when you do, and it doesn't happen. And this is a very typical situation where I have patients that come to me in a similar way as, as, as I did was you set up this great honeymoon situation and it doesn't happen. And it's just, and it, it was baffling, right? Like it crosses all socioeconomic backgrounds and educational backgrounds because you and I are both advanced prec degrees. You know, I'm a doctor, you're a PhD. This is something that we all, you know, think that, you know, shouldn't happen to educated women, right? Like, I think that's the biggest shocker. I always feel like, oh my God, I mean, I'm an actual gynecologist and I suffer from this and I should be able to have dealt with it on my own. But I think, you know, this is a big issue. It's like, you think like it's just supposed to slide in and it's just supposed to happen. And when it doesn't, because your body has an involuntary reaction to the potential pain of penetration. And some of that can be due to just like the historical shaming around it and how we shouldn't close your legs, don't insert anything inside of there, blah, 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 that we all grew up with. And then you're in a situation where you want to have sex with your husband. And this is something you've waited, you know, for us, like to we're in our 30s to do. 
and other people are doing it when they're teenagers. And we heard about it as teenagers, right? Like it was one of these things, I think that it was a big shock to, to most of our systems. Like, wow, like, why is this not so easy? Like, why is this not happening? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's what delayed, like it took me, it took me, I was shocked. And then, and then there's the guilt that I felt for X or my husband at the time, just being like, shit, I ruined this for him too. And like, so I'm like carrying all this guilt. And then I thought, I, I thought that it would still just happen because I heard these, these stories. I just prolonged it. I think it was up until about a year into it. My sister had said, oh, you know, I watched something on TLC called Strange Sex. And I think what you have is something called vaginismus. And so I watched the episode and there was it was about a Muslim woman and I just felt her pain because she wasn't able to. At the end, she did pelvic floor therapy and, and you know, she she ended up, she really wanted to get pregnant. And so that was the story I wanted to. I wanted it. This is holding me back from getting pregnant and having a family and I'm denying my husband of this this opportunity and stuff. And I didn't really get into, you know, I reached out to to Samina. I reached out to you after that episode. I don't remember exactly when, because then that's when you told me about vaginismus.com and then the resources there, the the book and the practice guide and the the dilators and stuff. And I don't remember exactly, but I, I think after watching that video I from TLC or the on, on uh, Strange Sex, I just thought it would happen still. I don't know what I thought. I just sat with it and thought it would just happen. Well, I think what's so hard to overcome with vaginismus, at least, which is a you know old historic term, it's really like your brain is controlling this your muscles down there, right? And you're involved. You can tell your brain, hey, relax, relax, relax. But it's just like anxiety when you have a when I talk to talk about anxiety with patients. Sometimes I call them brain hiccups, where you get these mm-hmm. intrusive thoughts that you can't shut down. It's the same thing. Like you have this intrusive thought, probably that this is going to hurt or, you know, you know, you're historically told not to even be doing this, you know, but now you can because it's in the context of marriage and all this stuff. And all of a sudden your body just responds in its own way. Right. And so I think that's what people just imagine at some point, you know, I'm just going to relax at some point, this relaxation will hit. And patients that have like anxiety or underlying other biological situations can have worsening vaginismus if they're on hormonal stuff like birth control pills. I'm going to talk about how that might affect the pain at the opening in one of the episodes, you know, giving someone provoked vestibulodynia, which then can lead to vaginismus. But for most of us, I think that had not been on anything and no other precluding factors, it's really sort of this staunch shame around sex that we've always grown up with. And I think that at some point you think, you know, I sh- I'm not, sh- I don't feel the shame anymore. I'm, I'm brave. I'm, I'm going to do this. I talked in my first episode about like, are you brave or are you shameless for coming on my mm-hmm. podcast, which I'll ask you later. But, but that's something we all grapple with, right? Like, is this brave to talk about it? Is this shameless? This is the culture that we have. You know, and it's, it's, it's not like it's not prevalent in other cultures. I mean, I think the purity cultures is kind of throughout many, many religions and cultures. But, you know, you're not wrong in that you feel like at some point, and that's why people wait so long to seek help is that, you know, at some point my body's just going to relax. It's just going to like happen for me. You know, you know, sex just happens for people, but it has to be a very active process. You know, like it has to be, and you have to come to terms with it too, right? You have to say like, okay, I'm ready to do it. That I think takes patience a little bit longer, right? Because at some point you realize it's not going to happen on its own. And I think that's when 
patients will come and seek medical attention, either with physical therapy, gynecology, whatever primary provider that you have. And I don't know if at what moment you felt that way, that you needed to do something other than just, it's just going to happen. You have to go through that whole desensitization process that I spoke about. And I think that's what a lot, what precludes a lot of people from getting help. And then the shame around it, right? Like, am I, I'm a 30 something year old patient and I can't have sex on like 15 year old. That's what's something my patients tell me all the time. Like I've seen teenagers having sex and I can't, and I feel like an idiot, you know? So I know that aspect also prevents patients from coming forward earlier until it becomes one of these things where it's affecting your relationship, quality of life, your desire to conceive, all of that stuff. And that's what the big impetus usually is. So you can tell me what you felt, Layla, like what did you feel and what was the turning point for you to say, like, I need to get real help? And thank you so much. You know, I know this is very emotional for you. It, it affected your, I would move to say that obviously other things that probably affected your relationship and your life. But I think this had a big impact on you in a lot of ways. Of course. And I'd like to, uh, I just preface that it's, it's heavy. Maybe I'm prefacing it to myself because, <laughs> because it's, it, it also makes me look bad that I didn't, I didn't prioritize. No, this is something we're in battle all the time. You know, we can't hold the shame all the time. Don't feel bad about yourself, please. So I didn't, my priority at the time, I was pursuing my PhD and, and then so I was exhausted at home and I just, I didn't want to put in the extra work or I just didn't have the energy to try to make something work because every time we tried, it would be really heavy emotionally and, and I just, take a lot of energy. And we tried, you know, as I know, I'm a practicing Muslim, but we even tried alcohol. I was like, you know, let me try to get drunk. Maybe that'll do something. That's what we tried actually on the wedding, not the wedding night, but the day after I was like, okay, let me. So, so here I am now trying to drink and I've never had alcohol. I mean, I may have had like a sip here and there, but I never had drunk enough to get uh, you know, buzzed. And so here I am now, like trying to get buzzed at the same time. So two experiences that are both very jarring and and it didn't work. All I did was get sick and throw up. <laughs> but as far as how long it took, it just, it became a comfort to not have to try. And I saw that my husband wasn't, was somehow doing okay and still wanted to be married to me. If he, like in that TLC video, the the strange sex video, I saw the husband was a bit more like, I want to have sex. You know, yeah, they made it a priority, like not just priority, but he was very aggressive, in my opinion, about it in the video that I watched. My husband wasn't like that. So I wasn't getting any pressure. So I was like, I'll just kind of let this, you know, how we do with other things in our marriages. I'll just kind of let this go on. It wasn't until like, I don't know, Samina, it was, I, I don't even want to remember, maybe four, four years into marriage, three, four years, uh, four years, probably when, so there's a lot of complications in my story. But one of them was that I discovered that my husband was a sex addict. And so I was like, oh, addicted to, to porn. And, and so I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. That's why he's not having sex with me because he's, you know, watching all this porn. And and it wasn't, uh, that's a whole nother episode, mm-hmm. but it wasn't just, oh, he's watching porn. It was a little, it's an addiction, you know, yeah. a sex addiction is legit. He's either taking care of himself, getting it done himself, basically, or getting the sexual pleasures, you know, taken care of. But also the yeah. addiction is a whole other thing. You're right. But I think important quality is that, he didn't actually pressure you. 
And, you know, he was very supportive. And I think that's important to say, because I find it varies. The majority of the patients that I see that are similar to us, I think most of their spouses are pretty supportive. When I find that, you know, they're either arranged in marriage or, or not, you know, fully comfortable with them, when men start getting affected by it, you know, a lot of times when you have unconsummated marriages, a secondary impact is erectile dysfunction and the old phrase of impotence. But erectile dysfunction comes with that or premature ejaculation, particularly in patients that, you know, maybe are both virginal, we'll say virginal, but Mm -hmm. haven't had coitarchy. And so I think that that's important to note that um, because it isn't just a you problem, right? Mm -hmm. It's, It's a relationship thing, right? Like it's a relationship thing. And so is it possible that, you know, things would have gotten better if he had pushed you more? You know, we don't know these things, right? We don't know. But these things kind of evolve on their own. And it seems like at the very least, he didn't pressure you and he was supportive for, of you and then dealing with his own problems at the same time, which, which is very, you know, much yeah. the case for most couples, I think. So that's not abnormal to hear. But yeah, I mean, you know, four years into it, that means that your muscles are probably that much more hypertonic, that the degree of anxiety of penetration becomes that much worse. I mean, I, I think the most the patient I've taken care of the longest amount of time that didn't wasn't able to consummate was 11 years into her marriage. Same thing. Yeah, that that was another thing in my marriage too. It was it was um, also you know we have as we get older you know caregiving for our parents as well, and so you're just in all these roles and and you're still. I had other distractions the the you know graduate school and then caregiving for parents. Yes. Yep. As we as our parents are getting elderly, you know. A lot of the responsibility tends to come on on daughters, and and that's true. And in our case, or you know, it was daughters. So, so then four years, what happened? Uh, I mean, I know I had reached out to you at some point. It's all kind of that part's kind of mushed up as far as vaginismus.com. No, and I know we talked for a while about it, and I think that the big thing is like you know you have to come to the terms with it and try to. It's all about self advocacy at the end, right? And so, whenever you were ready, that was the best time for you to do it, right? Maybe you didn't have the time to it. Maybe you were taking care of your parents uh, and you were studying for your finals. And so, it takes time to overcome vaginismus. You can't do it overnight, especially if you've had it for four years. And so, I think that that's an important factor is that life happens to us. And uh, that's a lot of times put on the back burner. And and I think that, um, you know, once we realize we need to get this solved, then I think that's when, you know, um, we can start advocating for ourselves. But with regard to what you said about using the alcohol, it's not uncommon for patients to do that, honestly. And I remember um, so many of my patients being told from other doctors, Mm -hmm. like, oh, just Mm -hmm. have some wine and it'll happen, you know? And like you said, these are like a lot of these are, you know, very religious patients or whatever. And they come to me appalled, like, can you believe the last doctor told me just to have some wine, relax, and it'll happen. Because that was the old adage, like people, especially the ones that are not experts in the area, don't know how to do it. They don't know, they don't know the right way to tell patients to to get help to find a physical therapist. But but I think that what you're saying is is normal, is normal for a lot of the patients that I hear that I take care of. I, I would say common adds a other, another layer of anxiety because you've never drunk before. So like, here you are doing something new with something new. Both things you've been raised all your life not to want to do, right? So I had to, I know the word codependence is, is there's like a word pro-dependence instead of codependence. It's not used as much. Melody Beattie, like mm-hmm. her book um, yeah. about codependent mm-hmm. no more, like that. Uh, but I was very co- codependent as I define myself. 
it really took until my my husband at the time, you know, until he uh, said he had an addiction. We went through the discovery phase of it, and he started. And it, that was, you know, it didn't just happen linearly. Like it, it was like all ups, fits and starts. But when when he actually started going into therapy, he's like, "Let's get you a therapist too." And I'm like, "Sure." There was something else going on with me that I was just completely dependent. And I don't know whether it's religious or a me thing or whatever, but like, I just, I was deferring completely to his, but I'm grateful that in a weird way that the addiction came out because that's when I started going to a sex therapist. And then maybe that's when I started really talking to you more about it. I think I may may have mentioned it earlier to you. And then you basically corroborated what the, what the sex therapist was saying. And then, and I always felt bad because we don't live in the same town. So I've always wanted to actually like yeah. physically help you in some capacity. But I'm glad that you were able to get the help. I think you looked her up or something that you're like, you gave me the thumbs up. <laughs> and like, and so, and then she said, which is you, you said as well, but you know, I, these were like sessions I was like having regularly with her. I started meeting her weekly. I had started as a partner mm-hmm. of an addict, but, and then, you know, uncovering the vaginismus stuff as well. And and she said, you know, pelvic mm-hmm. floor therapy, I'll write you a prescription for it. Or something, you know, and so then I started going to a pelvic floor therapist, finally, like four years into my marriage, you know, and then there's another twist in the story too, because, because ultimately I think the pelvic floor therapy confirmed, because I thought I always in the back of my head still thought, you know, although I was getting the, the talk therapy, I always thought that I somehow making it up still. And so the pelvic floor, you don't believe it. Right. And so the pelvic floor therapist confirmed, she's like, no, this muscle is really tight. We have to like, you know, relax and massage this muscle. And I was like, oh my God, it's real. And then she even like, you know, linked me up to, I don't know if it was uh, what type of machine they look you up to, but to be able to see the contraction. So I was able to see how, how tense the muscle was. And I was like, oh, wow, this is real. It's not just, I'm not making it up. And then, you know, with the dilation, with the talk therapy, with practicing the dilators, whatever, I started coming to, to terms and I was getting excited about things. And then, I, I mean, I, it's hard to, to, it wasn't just a point. I don't know how it happened. It was always there in the back of my story somewhere, but I just, I never, as I started becoming more able to, to receive my husband. And by the way, he's really big. So this was like, not only was this like needing to like get penetration. I just remind people that the vagina can accommodate because I mean, yeah, you know, we is- do have a baby's head that you can. But, so it can accommodate, right. but you have to work with the muscles. You do. And some people have obstructions, you know, maybe the hymen is too thick or the tissue or, you know, there's issues around the vestibule, which I'll talk about at some point, the vulvar vestibule, which is the opening of the vulva. But I mean, there's multiple potential biologic factors involved. But what we're dealing with, I think, is this involuntary muscle contraction over and over again. And so you were able to have successful consummation at some point. I was. I was. And as we started, you know, doing having more, you know, um, sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Regular sex. And it wasn't, you know, but it was just, first of all, the first time it was more like, it wasn't even about orgasm. It was just like, so exciting because it happened. And, uh, but then as, as we got more into, as he, as he got more into his recovery and I got more into pelvic floor therapy, et cetera, I started, I just started wondering about my own sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. 
I remember being exactly when the first thought that I allowed to happen. I don't know. I don't, to me, it feels like these thoughts were, they, they surfaced, Mm -hmm. but it's not like I was suppressing them my whole life. That's, that's my experience with them. But I was, I remember being in the shower and being like, what if I'm not sexually attracted to men? Mm -hmm. And I just, at the time I used the word lesbian, I now identify as bisexual. Just that that's how I sell, you know, label myself. It can mean many things, but, but I said, what if I'm not attracted to men? Mm -hmm. And so there was a period of like, whatever, several months to a year where here's my husband getting into recovery and I'm like a mess. Like I felt like the first time I, I thought of that and I just tried to push it away. And we, he was the first one I told he's been, he's my best friend even now. And he was the first one I told And we both thought, you know, we were naive. We thought we could work around this, Mm -hmm. you know, somehow because we didn't, neither of us identified me as being, you know, um, queer. So like, I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe this is just a a symptom, whatever. We worked with that same sex therapist that was mine. And she, she was our couple's but couple sex therapy for a while as well. We were also doing couples therapy. We were doing all sorts yeah. of therapy. He, him individual, me, sex therapist, us doing couples sex therapy, us doing couples therapy. Mm-hmm. And no matter what though, as our emotional bond grew stronger, because we had grown distant because of the addiction and, and of course not having physical intimacy, that was the other part of this confusing journey. It's such a, it's such a weird story. I wouldn't have you know, I look at it now from a distance and it's like, somebody told me this, I would be like, no, that's not a real story. But anyway, so so he was ultimately very supportive in, in that ultimately we got a divorce. It was in that sex therapist's office that it was June of 2020. We said that we're not going to be together anymore. We'll continue living together till the end of the year as best friends and, you know, just then there was no pressure for intimacy or any of that stuff. But it's weird that we ended up making that decision with the sex therapist and not in the couple's therapist's office. I don't know how that, but it kind of makes sense based on the journey of vaginismus and stuff mm-hmm. and the sex. But we we made that decision and he's he, if he wasn't so supportive of, of me, he was my first support for in terms of if we can't have all four legs of the table, you know, we have... We have the the friendship, the love, the caring. I don't know what that third leg is, but you know, like, but we don't have the fourth intimacy leg. So yeah. we deserve that. Each of us individually deserves that. So we ended up filing for divorce at the end of uh, 2020. And and then I moved on and started discovering myself mm-hmm. as, as a queer woman. Yeah. And I know that raises a whole bunch of questions of, was it the vaginismus? Does anybody, does that mean you're queer? Does that mean? And, I, you know, there's everybody's, as you said, everybody's is individual. In my case, yes. Yeah. It's not always the case. And I think, thank you so much, you really, for like, you know, just bringing out all your emotions. I know this is a hard thing for you to talk about, um, Layla, but a couple of things I wanted to highlight about your journey. Number one is that vaginismus treatment and sexual dysfunction, all of that is really a multidisciplinary treatment, right? Like you have to usually get seen by, you know, um, a clinician as well as 
couples therapy usually is involved. Sex therapy usually is involved. Pelvic therapy usually is involved. And it's a very much, like I said, a biopsychosocial approach, right? So we have to analyze all the aspects. And that's what we know happens for especially, you know, women in sexuality is that the biology is there. There's hormones involved. There might be, you know, medications you're taking that affect you. There might be, you know, uh, underlying anxiety where the site comes involved and how that affects your pelvic floor makes you hypertonic. And then there's the social aspects, right? There's the issue around, you know, were you, did you miss cues when you were growing up that, you know, maybe you weren't solely attracted to, um, you know, men or, or, you know, then there's this issue around, you know, did vaginismus, you know, scare you from penetration? I definitely have patients who feel that way, that they think that they were just so fearful of penetration. The idea just was like not anything they ever wanted. And then, you know, they realize they have more of a connection with, you know, same sex people, whatever the case may be, everyone's journey is different. And I think that, you know, your response was what you could do for yourself. And you did self advocate for yourself. And that's the next point I want to make is that we, my whole point in educating, and I think your point in coming out is that we need to be able to advocate for ourselves as women, because, you know, the government's not going to do it for us. The, um, many doctors won't do it for you. Many, uh, clinicians, PTs, whatever there, there are patients out there that don't get the help they need because they don't know how to get it. And a lot of that is lack of education, but also just not being able to advocate for yourself. So the fact that you came forward and advocated for yourself is wonderful and it's helped you with your journey. Now, you know, people might look at this and say, oh, vaginismus caused her to get a divorce. Vaginismus caused her to, these are correlations. They're not causations, right? Like this may be contributed. Everything contributes to something, but none of it is the root cause, right? So but I know that's one of the reasons you came out as well, is that you wanted this information to be out there for people, for people to understand that everyone's journey is unique and that, you know what, it may be that your speaking out in the way that you have might help. And, and I think that's the whole point that you, you were willing to come on my podcast is that maybe if I speak out, then I'm going to help someone either save their marriage or realize, you know, where they are on the spectrum of sexuality, whatever the case may be, right? So, you know, there's two things that came out when two thoughts that came up while you were speaking. So absolutely, you have to advocate for yourself in that list of folks that won't advocate for you. Often it's your family and friends. And it's not, you know, it's because they're like, I had so many times, you were one of the few people who understood. That's why I was like, thank goodness. Like uh, that, that, that understood that I wasn't just doing this to be cool or to be... Right. That's such a juvenile word. I'm trying to think of the appropriate. But anyway, I wasn't just doing this to to like be selfish yes. and like. And one of the exercises is is to uh, call, call your family members and your friends, the ones that you're close to, together and tell them that you're getting a divorce and so forth. And the folks that I, those were some painful calls, you know. But as I was talking to people through those calls and then afterwards, whatever. So I was reaching out as I was reaching out to family and friends. They were trying to. I know they were being protective, but they were like, you know, this is a big stake. I was in my early 40s and, you know, married to a great guy. And uh, so they were like, are you sure? I've never seen this in you. And I was like, well, neither have I, you know, but they were like, is this, you know, your therapist that's trying to do this? Or is this, is this like, you know, where did you get this idea? I, I have a sister who's a, who's a yeah. lesbian. And even she was protective and was like, 
I don't know this about you. What, where is this coming from? So yeah, family and friends are in that circle sure. of, of people that they're just in their own trauma about, because your trauma is, is also nobody, people who love you don't want to see you sad. So they're not ready. They're grieving too. They're, you know, they're grieving with us for the, yes. for the marriage. The loss of a marriage is like the loss of, you know, losing someone in your life that, you know, so. There was one more thing about the the marriage and, and people thinking, because that I, I think early on when you discover you have vaginismus and you're like, shit, but then I don't want a divorce and I don't want to be, I don't want to be queer and I don't want a divorce. Like, you know, those, but I hope my story isn't, isn't that I worked my ass off to, to, uh, and so did my, my then husband to, to make this work. So I very much support healthy, beautiful relationships, whether they're marriages or, or partnerships or whatever. So, but after we made the decision to be a three-legged table, to be a four-legged, I see that each of us is happy is there's a certain joy in a lightness. I feel light. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I, I don't grieve my marriage still, but there's, there's a me that that's now uh, free. I wouldn't trade that. I don't regret at all. My, what's um, my path and being married to him at all. I think it was a, you know, there were uh, just, it was part of my life and it brought me to need to being who I need yeah. to be. So, so I would not trade that for being in something that's called, you know, uh, a relationship that would ultimately be there to, to please others or to feel like I had to fit a certain right. role. Exactly. Cause we, he's still, it's not always the case, but he's still yeah. in my life. I'm still in his life very cautiously because, you know, he's seeing mm-hmm. someone right now. I was seeing somebody for a while too. And, you know, we don't want to like, you know, it wasn't yeah. in that way, but we're still f- friends. You know, we're both at peace and I wouldn't trade peace for anything. Well, I think that's a great way to end our discussion. Layla, I really appreciate you coming out and, and telling your journey with vaginismus. I think that every journey is unique, like I said, but, you know, um, your journey led you to understand, you know, your own sexuality. And, and yes, you know, um, you lost your uh, marriage partner, but, you know, we don't know what's to come for your future. So we hope that, you know, the best is only coming your way. And I think that, you know, just understanding, you know, your body and understanding, you know, all the aspects that have contributed to how we respond to, you know, society and and our expectations. Uh, You know, this is all part of just, I think, I think growing up in some ways, you know, you hit, you hit kind of like your midlife in your forties and you realize like, I'm going to live life on my terms and I'm going to do this my way. And I think that's great. And I feel that that, um, most women when they hit their midlife are like, they have no Fs left to give for lack of a better term, (laughs) you know, like, it's like, I've done everything you know, other people's way or whatever way. And now this is going to be my way. So I'm very grateful for you to come out and talk about your journey. I know it's not easy. I know it's difficult to relive it. And I really appreciate you. And, you know, maybe we'll have you back for discussion around, you know, the sexual spectrum. And when I have a, have a talk around that. Thank you so much, Samina. I'm so grateful that you're doing this. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you. We have to educate to advocate, right? So we need to educate people to help them advocate for themselves. So, yeah. Thank you again. That's it for me today. Um, You know, join us next time for another great episode. Thank you, Layla, for coming to talk about your vaginismus journey. Thanks again. I appreciate you and more next time.
If you have a second, please subscribe to this podcast. I'd love for you to be a follower and learn as much as you can about the things that we're going to talk about with all the people on our journey. Please review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. These reviews really help. Review us, comment, tell me what else you want to hear to get more information. My practice website is www.cgcchicago.com. My website for Gyno Girl is www.gynogirltv.com. My Instagram is gynogirl, so please follow me for some good content. Additionally, I have a YouTube channel, Gyno Girl TV, where I love to talk about all these things on YouTube. And please subscribe to my newsletter, Gyno Girl News, which will be available on my website. I will see you next time.